Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. We've all had trouble putting down our devices, and today's guest is trying to change that. Joining me today is 28-year-old Lars May, a trailblazing mental health advocate and global marketing guru. Lars is the founder of Half the Story, a nonprofit dedicated to redefining the next generation's relationship with social media. Most recently, the organization hosted a global day of unplugging to encourage people to disconnect with their devices and reconnect with themselves and with their community. Lars, I'm thrilled to have you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for hosting me. I love what you're doing because it's critical. As you have said in your congressional testimony, as you have said in your social media feeds, we regulate the foods we eat. There are nutritional inserts into everything we consume, yet we are feeding our eyeballs and populating our brains with a lot of screen time. Tell me first, Lars, if you could, how you got to this mission. How did you arrive in this place where you are now? Well, like many entrepreneurs, I wanted to solve my own problem. And that's where the journey began. Believe it or not, this October, it will be seven years ago that I was in college. And I unfortunately had experienced the worst of technology, but also I did see the brightest side of it. And the bright side of it as a young and hungry individual was that I could start a business. I could build a blog. I could express myself. I could build a following in a lot of the ways that you have. But the negative side of that was that I was still a young person at the end of the day. And I was trying to figure out who I was. And instead of really discovering that on my own, I was relying on technology to give me that affirmation, to give me that false sense of connection, where it ultimately got to a point that I was spending between 12 and 14 hours a day on my devices and completely isolated myself from the real world. It came to a point where I experienced suicidal ideation and my RA had to literally rescue me out of my dorm room where I was living alone because my roommate left me because I was depressed. And after going through that experience, and you know this as a doctor, you go in and there's the general protocol, especially when you're experiencing an emergency. And I was asked about so many different things like drugs and sex and alcohol. Are you sure you don't do this? Are you sure you don't do that? But no one asked me about my drug of choice, which was the place that I was spending over a third of my days. And that was social media. I guess I had that light bulb moment of realizing, I believe that this is going to be the cigarettes of our generation. And that's where the story began. It makes so much sense. 
it's a wonderful thing what you're doing because as you just described, your college experience is not unlike a lot of teenagers today. I think the data show that the average American teenager spends somewhere between seven and eight hours a day on social media. If you think about that, it's pretty shocking. And if you think about not just the time spent, there's the time spent that is time where you're not outside with friends, socializing, exercising, doing the dishes like I wish my kids would do more. It's not just the time spent, which of course is opportunity cost where people could be growing relationships and having creative free brain space to understand who they are and develop their person and their ideas more organically. It's also the content of what is being consumed. And as you know, the algorithms on social media tend to promote that addiction-like behavior with it. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I mean, if I tweet something out that goes viral, it's a dopamine rush. It feels good. It's chemical. And I think that we know medically, and I see this all the time, that people can be addicted to many different things, whether it's alcohol or recreational drugs or working, shopping, or the internet. We gravitate towards substances and behaviors that give us that dopamine hit, that take us away from more uncomfortable thoughts, or that just give us pleasure that ultimately bites us in the ass. So I guess my question to you is, what was it specifically for you and what do you see teenagers having the hardest time with? Is it the time spent or is it the content specifically that's causing harm? I think in some, the way that we describe it at half the story is that not all screen time is created equal. The media's way of, I guess, distilling this information is, oh, you know, it's all about just the screen time. It's all about the amount of time kids are spending on their phone. But I like to argue that our relationship with tech is closest to our relationship with food than anything else, because we really need it to survive in this modern age. And similarly, not all foods created equal. If you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you're mindful and intentional about the choices you make, you'll feel really good on the inside and the outside. The same goes for tech. If you get on and you're passively consuming, you don't have a purpose. That's like what I always say is a rabbit hole is like equivalent to sitting down to watch TV and pulling out a family size bag of Cheetos, where two hours later, you've realized you've eaten the whole bag not because you actually wanted to eat it, because it was a way to cope or just a way to passively move through time. As a society, I think that we don't quite understand holistically and a lot when we work with kids that not everything that they're doing is bad. And that's why we kind of like to look at both sides. But what I really think the big issue is, is that these places are not set up for these kids to thrive psychologically because of the algorithms and the ways that these things have been designed. It's like feeding a kid sugar candy eight hours a day. Of course, they're going to be hooked to it and they're going to keep coming back. A lot of what we've been working on, actually, our, our bill in California, which goes to Senate appropriations today, is to actually make it illegal for these platforms to use these addictive algorithms against minor. Because it's literally like putting your kid when they get their license into a car that hasn't been tested and doesn't have a seatbelt. Like that's literally what the digital world is doing for their minds. But on top of that, our kids that we work with, they don't even have control. Like it is easier for them to be on their device than it is for them to be off of it. And they've never been taught the idea of mindful consumption. It's either you're on it or you're off it. 
it's always a bad thing. You know, their parents are always pulling it from them, their teachers, there's always some sort of issue around it. So for kids, it's like the culture that we're living in, the context of what they're using their technology, but then even more importantly, the content that they are consuming and the inability to have control over that consumption. I love the way you describe that. It resonates so much with me, the food analogy. I think the relationship with food is often the most complicated relationship people will have, particularly for women and for young women. Obviously, anyone can have difficulty with food. You know, I know very few patients and human beings who eat when they're hungry, don't eat when they're not hungry, and they have no emotional attachment to the things they put in their mouth, right? Food is love. Food is social. Food is something we turn to when we're lonely, bored, happy, sad. Not everyone does that, but the point is that there's an emotional attachment to it. We have, as you know, and certainly social media plays into this, we have this masochistic way of thinking about bodies and body image. And then food, I think, can become this sort of tortured substance that is very complicated to manage. And like screens, you need to eat. I mean, there are people who survive without screens, but let's face it, if you're an American teenager, it's hard not to have a phone. I mean, it, it just, it would be unusual and it would be isolating. So my point is that I'm sort of making back to you the point you were making to me because I'm just thinking it through. One of the hardest things for some of my patients is navigating that gray. They can't not eat. That's not on offer. Like if you're human, you have to eat. The question isn't whether or not you can put food on a shelf in perpetuity because your relationship with it is wobbly. It's how do you moderate it? How do you navigate the gray? How do you understand the emotional triggers to binge eat, restrict, stress eat? Because ultimately, my job isn't to tell people, hey, stop eating M&Ms while you're watching TV or, hey, restricting calories is making you more anxious. It's to help people understand what are the root causes here and then for them to have the agency then to say, look, oh, okay, here comes that feeling of despair. Here comes my gravitational pull to the freezer for ice cream. Let's kind of roll back this automatic thought pattern that leads to a behavior that I'm then ashamed of and roll it back to give people the power to know what to do. And so I guess my question is, what are the tools that you're giving people, individuals to better regulate themselves? I love the way that you just described your work because I'm almost going to come back to you and say that our approach very much so mirrors that approach because so much of society is focused on the what and not the why. And so at half the story to even sort of break down what we do, what is digital wellness or digital well-being? It can mean something different to everyone, but for us as an organization, it is about your emotional health paired with your digital habits. As a result of growing up in this digital age, one of the things that many people don't understand is that the next generation is stunted emotionally in a way that we've never seen with any other youth before. They have a hard time identifying with their own emotions other than saying bad, good, okay, great, anxious, or hashtag depressed because that's what Twitter or TikTok tells them. But then also, they have a really hard time forming and feeling connected to humans offline uh, because of the digital world. And so for us, we really have a two-step approach, which is first, understanding what drives you to these different digital habits and experiences. And actually measuring that, we have an AI companion tool that we've developed, and we specifically focus on teens that are transitioning into high school so that they can see what they're doing on technology and how it impacts their mood so that they can identify habits, they can identify 
whether they were satisfied or not with their tech use due to the active and passive consumption, and then set pathways to actually shift these small habits or these small hinges that can move big doors. So first it's with understanding your why, you know, what's driving you to get online? Is it because you feel lonely? Is it because you feel insecure? Is it because you feel bored and sort of getting to the root of that? And then the second piece is, okay, well, what are the habits that we can make on our devices to manipulate them because they're manipulating us so that we can achieve more of our systems or our goals, right? But I always say systems because you don't have a goal without a system. And that can mean a couple of things, you know, one being turning off your notifications, completely deleting all the apps you haven't used within the last three days, doing a complete social media reevaluation where you're muting and unfollowing people that don't make you feel great all the way to actually manipulating the color of your phone to go to grayscale so that your brain is less ignited by the color of your technology. And then from there, it's how do we replace these voids in our life with these things that really ignite us, whether it be connection, community, creativity, to actually solve the problems that we're facing as youth in the real world. And typically, the students that go through our program, there's like three different sort of outputs. One is that you either want to get involved and be a champion. One is that you need more support and you join our peer support groups. And the other is that you might be indifferent. But for us, you know, we really try to have unique and tailored interventions. So because of the companion that we've created, students can choose one of three journeys. One to focus on overall mood, mental health, and tech. The second journey is really focused on body image and technology. And the third is focused on time management and productivity, because those are really the three key areas that we have identified through our research and work with teens in the last six years. I love it. The body image one is particularly interesting to me. I see so many young people and older people, for that matter, who, as a result of social media, have a difficult time connecting with their own body. They see images that are unrealistic online. And I'm not going to blame social media entirely for people's relationships with food or body image issues. But let's just acknowledge that it's not helping. Just as you said, that one of the practical tools to help manage the self-loathing people can have from scrolling through Instagram all day long is blocking the accounts that are spewing all this nonsense about diet culture and Botox Botox for 20 year olds. I mean, it's akin to my suggesting to my binge eating patients, you know, don't have the stuff in your house, which is sort of like a duh. It doesn't get at the root cause, but certainly not having those big pints of ice cream can help just like not having those accounts right in front of your face can certainly help. I mean, I think it was you, Lars, who told me that when was it Instagram was asked to moderate their diet culture content that there was like 20% less. You tell me the, the stat on that. Oh, yeah. So uh, Pinterest is Pinterest, the yes. media platform to actually remove all weight loss content on their platform in terms of advertising, which is actually where a lot of platforms make their money <laughs> is by advertising weight loss content. And since they've done that over the last year, there's actually been a 20% decrease in searches surrounding body image and all of the things that young people were searching for that was a part of this diet culture. And I think that that really shows just the power of these changes that platforms can make. And arguably some people, and you alluded to this, would say, well, social media isn't to blame for all of this. And I, yes, I agree. If you look back to when we were kids, 
there were magazines, there were Victoria's Secret shows, there were TV shows thing that still made young women feel bad about themselves. But the difference between then and now is that social media never shuts off. You go to bed with that girl in your head, you wake up with that algorithm, whereas TVs and magazines were basically non-responsive. But technology is completely responsive and adaptive and knows more about your insecurities than even yourself sometimes. And they are preying on those insecurities to actually drive their business models, which is, I think, the most upsetting piece of this whole story. And we worked on the Facebook files piece last year, that big Wall Street Journal piece. And those were all young women from our community at Half the Story. And we worked very closely with the reporter who had access to all the Facebook files. And quite honestly, you know, we had no idea how big this story was going to be. And I think that it really changed the trajectory of the role that people see social media platforms playing in our life, because it was the first time that we were able to say, hey, look, like Francis Hogan told the world that Facebook knows exactly what they're doing. And we don't have to live in a world where all social media is toxic in the same way that we don't have to live in a world where all food is. We just have to adapt and build systems where at least our minors are protected. So you had this experience as a college student at Vanderbilt where you were unwittingly getting sucked into the social media quicksand, addicted to the screen, feeling bad about yourself. It ultimately led to you having, I think what you described as a breakdown. And so I'm curious, Lars, what you now do personally. And by the way, as a doctor, sometimes I tell my patients do as I say, not as I do. Like I am a work in progress I try to take my own advice, but I'm not perfect at it. Do I floss after every meal and eat vegetables at every meal? And no, but I'm interested as someone who was the victim herself of this cultural Bermuda Triangle, like how do you manage it in your own personal life now? I mean, you have to be on social media to market your brand and half the story you, it's part of the deal. Like how do you moderate? That changes all the time. And I will say being an entrepreneur in this digital world, like completely, I always say abstinence doesn't work completely for tech, just like it doesn't work for sex. Like, I just don't believe in that. And I think even as someone that has struggled with disordered eating in the past, you can't just go cold turkey on anything. And I think that very much so applies to technology. In my life, I think one of the things that's hardest about being a female entrepreneur, especially, is that we have this other level of expectation that I don't think men really have, which is to be the face of the brand, to do this. Like you have to fundraise, you have to be the CEO, you have to do all of these things. And I don't really think we talk about it enough. And I don't think we show enough compassion for other women, I think, even as female leaders. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that like we do carry a lot of that weight. For myself personally, I actually just pulled this up because I had texted my friend this today. You know, I think the first thing is self-compassion, like before even thinking about habits, like I said something about like in this order, one, self-compassion, two, boundaries, both the digital boundaries and physical boundaries, three, healthy habits, like clean eating and working out and actually taking care of my mind and body. And then fourth, digital fasting and actually eliminating the amount of information that enters and exits my brain on a daily basis. And that has been the biggest one for me. Because as a founder, and I always joke, I say, 
you know, the least amount of decisions that I have to make in a day, the better off I will be. And I truly believe anyone else will be. And so, you know, that means not sleeping with my phone. That means saying, you know what, I'm not going to open my email on the train because I'm not going to be able to respond thoughtfully. I'm just going to start compiling all these things in my brain that I'm going to have to respond to. And it's not helping anyone. And so really setting boundaries like intermittent digital fasting and finding times where I'm responding to text. 15 minute blocks for emails. It allows me to have more space for creativity, but it is certainly hard. Like I'm wearing so many hats from managing my team to being the face of this while trying to fundraise and do accounting. And it's really tough because 98% of that work happens right here. So I'm just trying to have compassion and know I'm not perfect and ensure that when I am here, I'm present to what I'm doing and not passively consuming. I love what you said about self-compassion, because I think women in particular, I think men can be too, of course, are hard on themselves. We have a very high level of expectations. And particularly, as you just said, if you're a leader by nature and you're responsible for other people in the medical field where I am, I look at my job as not just someone to check boxes, check your cholesterol, check your blood pressure and scoot you along. See you next year. It's about helping people affect behavioral change. Sometimes people don't want to or need to affect change. Maybe point A is today, point B is in a year, and point A and point B are the same destination. But for a lot of people, they would be healthier with less alcohol, less of an emotional relationship with food, leaving an unhealthy sexual relationship. And in the case of social media, moderating their inputs. And as you said, it's like a diet. It's like a, a social media diet that you can't live without it in the world we live in, but you can moderate it and be more in the driver's seat of your own consumption. So behavioral change, as you well know, because you're doing this, you're helping people affect behavioral change, is the hardest thing for human beings. It is so easy to say, oh, tomorrow I'll be better. Tomorrow I'll quit smoking. In fact, I had a patient last week, a teenager, she's very adorable. And she came into her annual physical with me and she said, I'm so excited I quit smoking. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, when? <laughs> this morning. And I thought, you know what? That's, that's great. And I'm not dismissing her enthusiasm yeah. and I hope it's lasted. The point is that it's hard to make those changes. It's hard to quit smoking. It's hard to moderate alcohol. It's hard to put the phone on the shelf and go and walk the dog and think about all the other stuff that's in your brain. Just like you... I'm trying to help people not just tell them what to do and not tell them to be abstinent. Like, don't date that guy. Stop eating so much. Quit smoking. And also not shame people because that's not my job. I'm not a moral authority. And I also don't believe abstinence is appropriate just like you do, except abstinence from like recreational drugs, perhaps. But again, like moderation is everything. And that is the hardest thing to do is moderate. It's hard to make a change in a behavior. The mean between the extremes. And then to right? live in that gray space. And that's just sort of the nature of being a human. And I just think being a human has gotten so much harder in the digital age. You know, I grew up, I'm a lot older than you, but I grew up, email was just starting to happen when I was in college. I feel like I'm 105 when I say that, but we just didn't have to deal with that. I don't know how parties ever happened. I think we just showed up and hope someone else showed up also. But I think in this digital age, it's like there's such a need for guardrails from a legislative standpoint and then individual insight. You know, I'm a mother of teenagers, so I have a window into what their lives are like, hopefully. I think it's really hard to ask 
teenagers to step away from their own developing brain and think about it in a broader way. But this is why we need you to help us with that work and to make it cool to think about digital moderation. That's what we're after. And and I think you're spot on. People always say, oh, well, why don't we put this on parents? And I'm like, look, first of all, not everyone has a parent that's active and present and intentional. But secondly, we didn't leave drugs and alcohol up to parents. We came in with legislation for that. So why wouldn't we for this? But then thirdly, in the work that I've done over the last six years, I've sort of come up with this theory of this delta of change. And, and this is from seeing the work from the bottom up and, of course, tops down. And that there's kind of like these three key players that are playing in this space. There's the government, there's the technology companies, and then there's the brands and creators that have 99% of the social capital. And then there's the people in the center, which, you know, are just the consumers and the people that are living in society, the average individuals that are impacted by this. And it is going to be a combination of those three worlds through policy and change and commitment that will help build this world for us to thrive. But it does come down to personal agency in the same way that you got to get your butt up and go to the gym and work out. And that's why I believe in digital well-being as today and also the future of well-being, because we can't discuss our mental health or physical health or sleep health or social health or sexual health without talking about our digital health. And I think for those of you that are listening today, until we start taking our digital health and digital well-being as seriously as every other aspect of our life, those other things are going to continue to be impacted just because of that opportunity cost of screen time. You're so right that even in doctor's offices, that should be a question that's asked of teenagers. You know what I mean? You know, I don't ask my teenagers, like, do you drink alcohol? I just ask, how much are you drinking? I don't say, are you smoking pot? I say, how much pot are you smoking? And it's up to them to say, oh, gosh, I don't smoke pot. But a lot of my teenager patients are like, they tell me. Yeah. And that's helpful. And that's, there's no judgment. It's not shameful. It's just a question to give an open-ended, non-judgmental way of asking the question. Similarly, I ask my patients all the time, are you okay? Because it's the assumption that no one's okay. We're all just trying to get by. Weaving that into the way we think about health, thinking about health as the integrated sum of our genetics, our environment, our lived experience, and then our relationships to food, alcohol, other substances media, screen time, each other, work. Health is ultimately to me about having agency, feeling like you're somewhat or perhaps fully in the driver's seat of your health. I don't think we can ever all be in the driver's seat of our health because there's so many external factors, everything from poverty to Facebook algorithms. Like all of these things seep into our pores, right? Depending on who you are. But I think what's important that you're doing is you're trying to hit this from all different angles. You're hitting it from the policy angle and from the individual empowerment angle. And then you're modeling it yourself. No, I am. And I think that's it, right? Is like, this is a big vision. And people always have been like, oh, well, this is such a big vision. Like, how do you see this happening? And I think it's part of why I haven't given up, but also because I do feel like I have this responsibility and this calling as a young person who can relate and who can go and say, you know, this is why this is screwed up. Or, hey, this is why you do want to be in control because Instagram's making a thousand dollars off of you every single month from your own data, right? Like over a couple of years, you could be owning a house. And more importantly, it's like, if you put your phone down, you could gain back 30 years of your life. And when you think about it that way, like what you could do in 30 years beyond being on these technologies, like that's what we have to do is just change the way that people think about this so that they themselves can either choose to take action or choose to be complacent. Like every other vice or thing that we've had to experience in our world. 
I know that as a doctor, it's probably really hard to navigate just everything right now from the issues that you're seeing as a result of technology to, you know, just even dealing with young people in this very convoluted, challenging world where <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen from day to day. There's so many problems that social media poses to people in terms of what I see as their physician. So if I have an individual, like an adolescent who's suffering from depression or body image issues or gender dysphoria or what have you, social media provides not only an outlet for their noisy brain or complicated thoughts, it also provides communities that sometimes aren't healthy. Let's acknowledge that communities are healthy and there's an upside of social media too, right? Like I like seeing my nieces up in upstate New York playing with their new dog. Like that's awesome on Instagram. People can accidentally sort of identify in a place that isn't really productive for their health and well-being. I think it's human nature to want to sort, label, and categorize ourselves and others. I just worry that particularly after 29 months of isolation or relative isolation during the pandemic, that there's a gravitational pull towards reductionist visions of ourselves. The internet rewards that. And the internet rewards also some pretty toxic conversations and back and forth, angry vitriol and rhetoric. I don't necessarily know what my question is to you, Lars, but I just think, you know, I'm just sort of stating the problem, even as someone who's like, I'm almost 50. And like, it's hard for me to navigate. I just think it's very hard for young people to navigate. I mean, it's so hard. I always say social media is a magnifying glass. It's a magnifying glass for your emotions, for your insecurities, for all the things that we experience in the world. And to be honest, on my bad days, social media makes me feel even worse. And I just can't imagine what it's like as a young person. I mean, I can because I work with so many of them and I hear it. You know, when you get on, and I always like go back to this, when we were doing our initial research in the pandemic, and we were like, all right, anyone from grade school to high school that wants to get on a Zoom, and it's like a Sunday afternoon, and this kid that's like 10 to 12 years old is choosing to get on a Zoom and talk about how negatively social media is impacting them versus just like be outside with their friends and play. Like that's the stuff that makes me feel sad. But it also gives me hope because I really hope that half the story can continue to shape the future and hopefully be that nonprofit and that light that can make it fun and accessible and you know somewhat empowering to have agency over your relationship with tech and to give people a path forward. And I'm not going to stop until we do that, regardless of the challenges and the obstacles and the things that we have faced and will continue to face. But I feel like it's really what my gift to the world is and also to you to help support the practitioners and the parents and the teachers that are like, what the heck, like we can't take this all on because you can't. And there needs to be different people to carry that load. This is clearly what you were born to do, why you're on the planet. Do you think there's going to be some major cultural change. I mean, if you think about major cultural changes in my lifetime, it's like going from sitting on an airplane with a cigarette smoking section, like one row behind you, which is kind of hilarious because it's as if there's any separation between cigarette smoke and non-cigarette smoking section, gay marriage. These major cultural shifts have happened in my lifetime. Do you think there will be a backlash where it will be, you know, kids nowadays, like my kids look at cigarettes as like, oh my God, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. You know, not that they're perfect people, but I'm just saying like, do you think that there will be some backlash? And do you think that there's a way to 
just like the tobacco free kids movement has associated it being like uncool to smoke like what's the special sauce there for kids to associate time away from screens with health and well-being like what's the special sauce that's the billion dollar question. I think for us, it's advocacy and community. Like we're starting this thing called Screen Free Weekends, where we actually did this in Washington Square Park in Central Park, where it just brings teenagers together and gives them a place to connect and do things that are fun, but also through this very like advocacy movement. Like teens love to go against the system. They love to be like, screw meta, screw this, screw that. Like, you know, we are living so many tides are changing right now, and I'm not even going to get into them. I think just from a political and social perspective in America, the next generation, they're like a deer in headlights. Like they are fighting, they have their causes, but they're also terrified because of what we're facing in this world. I truly believe that they're going to be tired of things happening to them that they don't have control over, but more importantly, of experiencing this immense isolation. And we're already starting to see it where kids are like, you know what? I don't even want to be on this thing. I feel so good being here and being present and being with half the story and doing this thing. You know, if we can impact one kid a day, which hopefully we can do more than that, but you know, over time, that's enough to create a movement. They always say you need a thousand people behind you to really make a change in the world or to have a successful album. And so I think, you know, my focus is to find those young people all over the world that want to be a part of this movement because kids are tired. They're living in a state of apathy, which is honestly more devastating to me than actually kids feeling emotion because apathy is like disassociation. Yes. So my goal is like, if we can at least get kids from being apathetic to empathetic or apathetic to enthusiastic about themselves, each other in the world, then those are positive steps in the right direction. I think you're right that kids and teenagers like to be in control. They like to be in charge. And I think you're onto something when you tell kids and teens that how much money these social media platforms and companies are making off of their self-loathing for looking at, for example, diet ads. And so if you can get it to be like a counterculture, like, wait a minute, people are hopefully intrinsically motivated to get outside in nature and to practice new behaviors that then lock in the change that they've made. As you just said, it's getting at their hearts and getting at their minds together with the goal of promoting healthier hearts and minds. One of the things that maybe we haven't clearly said is that, you know, that journey and that path to healing, yes, it's very individual, but it's also very communal. And your difference between succeeding and failing is really based on the community and the support system you have around you. And half the story really aims to be that for young people because it's very hard to heal alone. And we've seen it with other things and other addictions like AA, all of those sort of things that community is so important. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things that this next generation is lacking. How did you come up with the name Half the Story? Social media is only half the story. So it started as a grassroots storytelling movement where after going through my own mental health crisis, I printed half the story on a sticker and shared my story online. And then young people started to do it from all over the world. That was really where the story began. That will be outlined clearly on our website. It will be updated and hopefully more people will get a sense of that. But that's where it began. I love it. I am going to take a page from Lars and really work on my digital hygiene. I'm pretty bad about it. And I tell myself the things that people tell themselves that like five more minutes or, oh, but this is so funny and this is so relaxing and watching a cat climbing up a couch and then falling flat on its face is so enjoyable at this moment. You know, so you just convince yourself that like this is something you need right now. 
or that it's rest for your brain when it's really not. And so I'm going to take a page from you and practice what I preach. And I'm just so grateful that you're willing to talk to me today. Thank you. And I feel great because I've made an impact on one person today, which is my goal. Uh, so I really appreciate it. And thank you for making space for this conversation. I'm surprised this is actually my first podcast I've ever done with a doctor that isn't in the mental health space, like a psychiatrist. So, you know, the fact that I got to do this with you is such an honor. And um, I'd love to continue the conversation in DC and beyond. I'd love to continue the conversation. I am in DC. I was able to testify in front of Congress this spring about the role of mental health in our whole health. And as we think about pandemic policies, people have said that to me. It's interesting that you're not a psychiatrist. And to them, I say back, psychiatry is a specialty. Mental health is a universal phenomenon. We all have mental health. You can't opt out of it like you can. You don't all have mental illness, but we all have mental we health. We all have mental health. It's not like you can be born and say, you know, I'll take the gastrointestinal health. I'll take the cardiovascular health. I'm going to opt out of the mental health part of being human. I'll just have the neck down model. So you have mental health. It's not a question of do you have it. It's about do you connect it with your physical health and your everyday experience. And again, our relationship with social media is part of our mental health. It's part of who we are. It's how we live. It's how we relate to other people. And we have to have a consciousness and awareness around it. So I hope that it's more primary care providers, pediatricians, adolescent medicine doctors, and primary care doctors like myself who are talking about this because just like we ask about alcohol and food and relationship to how do we manage work stress, we have to talk about our social media habits and hygiene. Absolutely. So anyone that's listening to this, their homework should be to have a conversation about social media and how it makes you feel with your family. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals, which should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C. Thank you.